our research is becoming more and more relevant as we understand that hysteres also affects cattle of all ages. Like you said, growing heifers, young stock, uh, dry cows. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Exzealot, a Novell product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. SmaxTech, get insights from inside your cows with SmaxTech for higher herd health and profitability. Our Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Adiseo USA, producers of SmartMIMM and MilkPay.com. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Good day, and welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. I'm Mark Thomas uh, from Dairy Health Management Services and one of the hosts of the Dairy Podcast Show. It's a pleasure today to have uh, Dr. Jimena Laporta with us from the uh, Department of Dairy Science. Uh, she's a professor at uh, Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, Jimena, uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a good day to be here. So, uh, Jimena, uh, uh, we had some uh, time to uh, catch up uh, uh, before this uh, recording uh, to get a little bit of your background and, and so forth. Can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, your background, you're originally from uh, Uruguay and uh, yes. have experienced both in uh, the, the heat stress climates of, of Florida and, and now in the, a little bit less heat stress uh, climates, but, but still exists in the summer of Wisconsin. So give us a little bit of background of uh, how you uh, got to the U.S. with your graduate studies and, and your current position at uh, Wisconsin. Of course. Um, again, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here sharing with you sort of my story and the research that I do. Um, I am originally from Uruguay, as you said. Um, I was raised more as a city girl than a farm girl, <laughs> but I I was exposed, you know, early in, in my life at a, at a young age to my grandfather's ranch. So that kind of really have a a positive impact or influence in, 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 in where I am today and what, what am I doing? And, um, you know, in my family, everybody thought I was going to be a veterinarian or a doctor, you know, things like that. But, uh, I decided to study biology, uh, just to get more of, a uh, rough training in, in just a basic science. And, uh, I, as an undergrad, I begin to work with, uh, sheep in Uruguay. There's a lot of cattle, but there's a lot of sheep as well. So I ended up doing my thesis in, in, in sheep, in wool production. And, um, and I really love research. I was like, I, I, can, I need to keep doing this. So I started my master's uh, there back in Uruguay. And my research focus changed a little bit there. I, I started focusing more on physiology, endocrinology, molecular biology. And I started working with beef cows um, on pasture and different genotypes. And, um, and then there I started sort of like um, helping others with dairy projects, dairy cow projects. And 
you know, I was milking beef cows and then I was introduced to dairy cows. So I was like, how do they make all this milk, you know? So I, it really got me thinking and I was like, you know, I need to learn more about these. I want to know how they make it. And so I came to the U.S. in 2010, first for an internship. And then in 2011, I came to U.S. to do my Ph.D. with here in UW-Madison. Um, and I did it in lactation physiology with Dr. Laura Hernandez. Actually, I was her first student, her first graduate student. Uh, don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, it, it was a great, great experience. And there in my PhD, I focused mostly on the communication between the mammary gland and the bone for calcium mobilization during lactation. And I ended up working with mice and rats and cows. Uh, so I had a really awesome experience. And um, in 2014, I, I finished and I moved to Florida. I started my own research program in mammary physiology, lactation biology. So you know, naturally transitioned to work with heat stress, you know, taking advantage of the the 250 days of heat stress there in Gainesville and, uh, you know, started collaborating heavily with uh, Dr. Jeff Dahl there. Um, and then the, my focus um, shift a little bit into heat stress and trying to investigate, you know, the developmental consequences of in utero heat stress and fetal programming and the long term effects of, of uh, perinatal programming in a way and uh, did a lot of research there, was there for five years and um, three years ago in 2020, I was recruited back to UW-Madison to my alma mater and I couldn't say no. Um, so here I am back in the Dairyland, um, continuing some of the work that we started in Florida um, here and, uh, you know, doing some other exciting work uh, that I would love to share with you. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Great. Well, we're looking forward to uh, digging into the discussions um, about heat stress, uh, especially heat stress in, in the young calf and, and the, the future effect on that for the uh, uh, effect for that animal. Um, and then talk a little bit about epigenetics also. And, and uh, you have uh, some USDA grants that are quite interesting also. Um, for those of you listening, um, look back in the previous podcast. Dr. Jeff Dahl uh, was a, a previous uh, guest on our dairy podcast show. Um, some really great discussion about uh, the effect of heat stress on, on dry cows um, and the effect on that calf. And, and, and Dr. Laporta will, will, will continue with, with some of that uh, data and the research that's been done in that area. <clears throat> um, I guess as we get started here, um, as most of you know, if you're a regular listener, I'm connecting here from Torreon, Mexico. So if we're looking for some of the hottest places on the globe, I think this summer we had a few days where Torreon was actually um, in the news as, as one of the hottest places on the globe. Um, and, and you can wonder why we have uh, milk cows here, but we do, as many other heat stress areas. So certainly if the weather's a bit cooler um, uh, as we move into this time of year, which is great for milk production and 
and uh, better reproductive performance. But we know that heat stress uh, is just around the corner and we need to prepare for it as in, in all areas. So as we start with, with that, Jimena, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of you have, your USDA grant that's just wrapping up and then one that's just starting, a little bit of the background of those grants. And, and I guess as we always like to do is take home some, you know, some points today. Gee, what can I do differently or what can I think about differently um, through the winter here? Uh, in most cases, uh, some of our listeners may be in the Southern Hemisphere and they could use this information right now as summer is coming upon them. But uh, what can we do um, to abate um, the issues that we see? And again, think outside of the box a bit. In most herds, we have you know good to excellent cooling in, in lactating cows. Um, hopefully we have it in close up. Maybe the dry cows kind of get second best or nothing. And calves, for the most part, have kind of been forgotten in a lot of uh, uh, facilities, a lot of places. So when really, the, you know, as the future of the herd, we know nutrition. Tell us about that, that, uh, that link between nutrition, uh, heat stress, and then um, I guess you can throw in some of those epigenetic uh, uh, type processes there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I can start with a little bit of, you know, um, thoughts on on that right so we are all well aware of you know the, the impact that heat stress has on lactating cows um all over the world and and i think this is becoming not just a regional issue it's it's, it's worldwide right um and i think our our research is becoming more and more relevant as we understand that heat stress also affects cattle of all ages like you said growing heifers, young stock, uh, dry cows. And when we start to factor in all the losses that we, we have from that, um, really the economic impact is, is, is substantial. And uh, we have to start thinking about that. So I think our work that uh, began in Florida and continuing here in, in, in Wisconsin has really showed that uh, heat stress experienced during a very relative short period of time during the dry period when that cow is pregnant can really affect not just the cow herself, um, and this is part of what uh, Dr. Dahl was discussing, the impact on that dry cow in her next lactation. We see a huge detriment in her mammary gland. And just as a little bit of background, I'm a mammary physiologist by training, so I really look deep into the gland and, uh, you know, we see microstructural differences, uh, cell turnover differences impacted by dry period heat stress, particularly during that early involution stage that really, really impact her ability to produce milk in the next lactation. But the other important concept here is that that dry cow is pregnant, right? Uh, it's in her last trimester of pregnancy. And there's a lot going on in utero. That calf is growing at an exponential rate. Her organs are developing. There's a lot of plasticity going on there. So when the cow is pregnant, the intrauterine environment is impacted. So that calf is growing and developing in, in a hot environment. And that has an impact on her physiology, development, and again, epigenetics, as we were uh, talking about earlier. You were mentioning that. Um, 
And so in utero, heat stress can really impact the epigenetic signature, like I like referring to uh, as that. It's a signature that in utero, heat stress exerts on that animal uh, that stays with her for life. Uh, we, we have seen that these epigenetic changes that are triggered in utero um, really are observed at different stages of life, uh, not only in the mammary gland, which is where I dig into the most, um, but also we see the same genes and the same pathways that are impacted in bull calves, in the liver of bull calves, right? Nothing to do with different gender, different stage of life, um, different organ, and it's the same genes. Uh, we have found these common genes and pathways that are uh, methylated that are changed in utero that are impacting the physiology of the cow of the you know the bull uh, in terms of the the heifers and the cows later on those differences probably are the ones that are uh, really impacting her ability to produce milk when they become uh, cows so I went through different <laughs> routes. Okay. So yeah. you, you guide me where you want me to go, and 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 we'll go there. No, um, thank you. But that's uh, kind of like a you know uh, boots on the ground for for this uh, first USDA grant. Um, you know the mammary gland differences that we see as well. You know those heifers are born with are born smaller, but their mammary glands are much smaller. You know the weight and the size and those cells that are inside the gland that are going to be future milk producing milk in the future those are um truly impacted as well so that cellular turnover and the size of the fat pad everything and not just at birth uh but later in life as well okay so i, I got a lot of questions uh going on here i guess uh, <laughs> I talk too first, much, so you need no to stop. no not at all no <laughs> this is perfect so first one for some of our listeners epigenetics is certainly you know a, a common buzzword now lots of people hearing about it I joke with some of my friends that epigenetics uh, helps me explain some of my friends' behaviors. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but in, in in serious terms, uh, for our listeners, can you give the the quick you know yes the, the quick <laughs> definition of epigenetics and and some good examples of uh, epigenetics that that affect the the dairy animal. Yes. So um, epigenetics, the definition is, is simple, is above genetics, right? So um, all the cells in our body have, the, for the most part, the same um, DNA information in, in, in the cells. Um, but epigenetics can change. So this gives the DNA a possibility to uh, change more rapidly and more dynamically. And uh, these um, epigenetic mechanisms, that there are a few. The one that you might have heard the most is methylation, but there are also, you know, other epigenetic modifications that will change the chromatin structure. Um, for example, histone modifications, and also uh, another bus, buzzword is the long non-coding RNAs uh, that can really change the way that those genes are packed and affect the expression of certain genes. So I think long story short, um, epigenetics um, gives uh, plasticity to a more fixed uh, genome to be able to, depending on the environment they are at, depending on the nutrition they have, depending on the how hot it is, uh, they, can, they can change and adapt physiologically by changing the expression of, of certain genes and, and pathways. 
So um, just an example that might help understand the concept is, um, you know, for example, the beta-casein gene that it's only expressed in the mammary gland, right? Uh, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be hypomethylated. There's no methylation there, so that gene is expressed all the time in the mammary gland when it's lactating. But in the muscle, for example, that gene is silenced. So it's very heavily methylated because methylation, for the most part, and I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty, but when, when a gene is methylated, it's, it's likely silenced. So beta-casing, which is a gene that is exclusively expressed in the mammary gland, will not be expressed in the muscle, but it's the gene is going to be there. And so vice versa with the, I don't know, myosin uh, protein, the, the gene is, is, is in, present in the DNA of the cell in the mammary gland, but is silenced by, by methylation, if that makes sense. So... Um, this methylation will change the ability of those genes to to be expressed. So then if some aversive event caused methylation of uh, those genes in the mammary gland, you would have potentially reduced protein production in, in, in milk as, as a exactly. simple, as a simple yes. explanation of that. So I, I like to demystify, you know, methylation because it seems like a scary word that it's a bad thing, but it, it really isn't. It's, it really allows the animal to adapt to its environment. It allows the fetus to adapt to its environment. It, it, it senses the environment and it, it, it helps, uh, for the most part, it helps uh, with adaptation. And it's a quick way. You know, the other way is, you know, mutation in genes that requires years and years and years to be fixated in a population that's that happens you know it's mostly common in evolution but methylation is a uh, or epigenetics is a is a quick way that uh allowed for plasticity so um we we have to sort of demystify that and and an example that i like to use as well is um you know there are a, a, a couple of papers actually that that very very ele elegantly show this. For example, cows that um, are infected and have mastitis, for example, uh, the first reaction is to reduce milk production, right? Um, because of that infection, the way that uh, uh, that infection deals with uh, this is by methylating. Um, the promoter of milk protein genes. So then those are going to be reduced and there's going to be less milk production. So you, you have a bacteria, you need to reduce milk production. And that's, that's a simple way of doing it. And, and, and it's reversible, right? Once the bug is gone, then there's, there's a signal to, okay, now you're ready to go back to milking. You know, that, that's uh, another example so, Jimena, along those lines, given that it is reversible, are there situations, uh, for instance, okay, we'll talk about heat stress in the, in the uh, unborn calf in utero or, or, or uh, you know, in the early neonatal period. Those would be examples potentially of, of uh, changes in the gene methylation that are non-reversible, correct? Yes, yes. And uh, it's more complex than we, we want to 
talk about today. But uh, yes, those those methylation changes that occur in utero, what we have seen is that they somehow get past those uh, periods where methylation is raised uh, in, 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 in development, and they are able to stay with the animal for a long period of time. And uh, those, along with morphological changes that happen in the tissues, for example, the mammary gland of those in utero heat stress heifers is not only smaller, but the ductal structure that really um, during puberty and gestation is going to start invading that fat, but I'm proliferating, it's, it's smaller. It's reduced. It has reduced proliferation. So um, what we think is happening is that that signal of stress in utero is really trigger, triggering methylation and tissue structure changes that together really signal that animal that uh, the, the environment is not a good one, you know, because they are heat stress in utero. So uh, there are different theories that um, have been proposed, but for the most part, the animal is preparing for a life outside the womb that they think is going to be that, right? It's going to be harsh. It's going to be hot. Um, and so potentially those changes that are happening are are um, trying to protect and adapt that animal for lower production for survival. That's what we think might be happening. Um, and we have shown that uh, even when you um, when you cool the calves at birth, those calves that were in utero heat stress, those changes still remain. At least in terms of growth, uh, we don't recover that um, at least during the pre-winning period. And those those animals are going to be kind of impacted for for a long time. So that really makes a lot of sense. We we don't want to uh, propagate that, obviously. We want high-producing, productive animals, but really that animal is born, is uh, going to be born, or is born into an environment that's that's harsh, then lower milk production would obviously make sense for survival. Um, you know, obviously that, that animal programming doesn't know that it potentially is going to be, as an adult, in a wonderful facility with cow cooling and, 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 and uh, comfort. Um, but, uh, you know, if you think about that, it makes a lot of sense of, of the adaptation of uh, during our early neonatal life. So as we, um, as we take that information um, and some of that background, uh, tell us about the trial that you just wrapped up and, and what it's looking at and, and uh, you know, some of the results you, you hope to find uh, from that work. Yeah, so I, I think some of that we talked about a little bit. We we um, we were able to map the sort of the epigenetic signature across time in the mammary gland, and we see these these changes that are really sort of permanent and that are shared between other tissues and other um, genders. You know, like the, the the bull calves also have these methylation changes from specific genes uh, that are impacted by utero heat stress. Um, so we were able to do that, and we did a series of euthanasias in these animals. We did birth and weaning, and then at puberty, we also collected mammary biopsies. We collected also during gestation, which those two are really important developmental 
uh, stages for the mammary gland. And we see that, you know, one thing that is very important in, in the mammary gland is, is, is proliferation of those cells, differentiation, proliferation uh, to, to grow into that mammary fat pad as uh, they, they grow, right? And so what we see across the board is at birth, at weaning, at puberty, during gestation, and later during lactation, is that the capacity of the mammary gland to proliferate is impacted tremendously. Um, I want to say that uh, reduced by 20 to 30% in those uh, heifers that were in utero heat stress. So there's something going on. I, I definitely think methylation plays a role, but we haven't tied that uh, to proliferation yet. Um, that it's really signaling that animal to let, let's not proliferate, just stay quiet to, to the mammary gland, right? Um, so they not only have smaller glands, we show that across time, but they also, those glands also proliferate quite uh, less than a heifer that was in utero cool at the same time. And so that was really striking to see that epigenetic signature uh, across the board, that the proliferation is really impacted. Um, you know, we were able to do some economic analysis of the losses in production of those heifers. Uh, productive life is really impacted. Um, just overall lifespan is, is impacted uh, greatly as well. So when you uh, put that into the equation, right? It, it really adds on to the losses of the dry cow herself when you think about her progeny. Uh, and so we estimated roughly $600 million on top of what has been estimated for the dry cow herself, which is uh, roughly $800 million in, in losses due to milk production uh, reductions. So really that adding that progeny into the equation really, uh, you know, further <laughs> exacerbates the problem. So we know it's a problem already. And I guess sort of uh, one other thing that we uh, found is that the granddaughters of those dry cows, so these are the daughters of the daughters, right? If that makes sense. So these are what we call the second generation. So you have the when you think about a dry cow that it's under heat stress, you have the impact on, on the cow herself, which is generation zero to me. Um, you have an impact on the F1, which is her daughter. Um, so that's generation one. But you also have an impact on the F2, okay, which is the second generation. And this is because in the fetal daughter during that heat stress, the germline that's going to give rise to the granddaughters is also developing in utero at that time. So uh, we haven't confirmed this, but what we think is going on is those methylation changes and tags are also um, bound <laughs> to the, the germline. And, and so you're impacting the granddaughter as well because of that. And uh, we've seen these animals produce less milk, they survive less. And now I'm getting my hands uh, dirty uh, because we're looking at the phenotypic impact on those heifers. So this is uh, really kind of new data that we're uh, getting uh, right now, but it's uh, we're seeing that those 
granddaughter's mammary glands proliferate less, which is striking. I I find that information really, really interesting and and, and share that with with our producers and and clients. But I I think it's really important for our, our dairy producers to recognize that because as we work for uh, improving uh, not only genetics, but, uh, you know, management and, and cow comfort and so forth. What are some effects that are going to take now multiple generations to recover from, if you will, or, or move beyond? And I, I think that's that's really important. Um, before we connected, Jimena, we, you talked a little bit about um, looking at heat stress and different uh, levels of nu- nutrition eating strategies. Can you comment on that? And I think maybe you're leading to that a little bit, the, the phenotypic um expression is there some ability okay we've we've had this insult we've we've methylated these genes they're turned off but is there some ability to recuperate or recover with uh higher planes of nutrition and then a little bit of that interaction we know from you know really early trials when i was a undergrad at cornell mike van emberg was doing his uh you know pivotal uh feeding trials that that have been repeated now with many uh, many different groups um but so we know the impact of early life nutrition on milk production. But now how do these go hand in hand when you put another stress such as uh, heat stress uh, onto that? Right. So um, I think that's a very uh, interesting area because in terms of the prenatal heat stress, so the utero heat stress, uh, what we have done um, uh, in, in our lab is once they are born, uh, what you do is we gave them, uh, we cooled them, okay? So we were thinking, all right, if you're born to a heat stress dry cow, but as soon as you're born, I, I cool you, you're going to re- recover, right? But we didn't see that. Uh, the growth, they, they were very responsive to the cooling. So we provided uh, fans, so uh, roughly two meters per second of airspeed. Um, throughout the pre-weaning period and the growth of that animal we weren't able to recuperate so they they stay smaller they uh you know feed intake we were able to improve a little bit they were responsive to the cooling so when you measure rectal temperatures they were you know back to normal um but the growth was was not uh was not rescued. So we, we tried with cooling a little bit. Nutrition, I'm not aware, and I think this is a fertile area, um, of trying to rescue the utero heat stress heifer with nutrition. Um, the, the, uh, the, what we're working on right now, and this is in the um, newer USDA grant, I, I'm bragging about this because for a few months I have two overlapping, so, you know, I... I brag about that, but uh, we're starting this new USDA grant in collaboration with Chateau from the University of Georgia and also Adam Geiger from Simpro because in his doctoral work, he showed that feeding higher planes of nutrition early on in life can greatly impact mammary growth, specifically parenchyma growth, which is what it's going to become that future secretory tissue. Um, And so we knew that heat stress during that early life can also impact mammary growth. So cooling can improve mammary growth. So what we're trying here is the interaction between these two. We're providing heat abatement 
in summer with high and low plane of nutrition. So what we're trying to do here is to revamp the old dogma that, you know, the mammary gland, it's becoming important when she hits puberty and that's where we need to intervene. We're seeing, and there's a lot of research, and actually Van Amber's research is, is, is very important in that area, has contributed significantly to show that the, the mammary gland allometric role really starts early on in life during the pre-winning phase. So this is a tremendous opportunity to manipulate that. And, and you know, it's, it's 60 days that we can do something and help that cow to, um, for a better start, right, to, to improve mammary growth uh, early on. And we have seen uh, a great impact by, by nutrition, by cooling, and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. what we're trying to do here is uh, combine these two, test the interactions in two different environments. We're going to test this in the Midwest, in Wisconsin, and also in, in Georgia, uh, clearly different climates, uh, different summers. And uh, kind of the question is, do we need cooling here? Or maybe if we improve nutrition, we can impact mammary growth in summer. Uh, my suspicion is that in uh, Georgia, you will still need the cooling. <laughs> but uh, we, we really want to demonstrate that with, 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 with data. So we're going to follow these animals and hopefully get some first lactation data uh, on them. So that's, that's the, that's the long story short. Okay. Jimena, can you speculate at all from a, from a very practical standpoint, um, what we've seen over the last few years, and I, I speak to your colleagues, even in, 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 you know, heat, more heat stress areas of the U S um, these calves that, uh, in, in Mexico, agitadas, agitated mm-hmm. calves or, um, in many cases, misdiagnosed as pneumonia, but they're often very young calves, uh, uh, you know, within the first week of life that show these signs of high respiratory rate. Again, you might think it's a pneumonia case, but you, you, you tend to take a step back as a veterinarian and say, well, gee, it's, it's really rare to have a pneumonia case that early in life, possible, but not likely. And, and what we really related to these, uh, these two is, is heat stress. It seems to be, especially at the end of the season, um, when maybe even heat stress is improving a little bit, but this accumulation, maybe some of these dry cows that really right. had, you know, their dry period, the entire dry period through heat stress. Um, yeah. I guess it, I don't want to call it a new disease, but it seems to be more recognized. And uh, my question to you is, in trying to explain that, what's happened in most herds is, is a much improved plane of nutrition, more milk feeding, and and maybe this doesn't explain it, but almost are we um, certainly don't want to look at feeding more milk as detrimental in that case, but are those, are those calves at a metabolic uh, rate or level that's causing, you know, uh, I'll say cause and effect, but because of the higher metabolic rate related to greater nutrient intake, are these signs more evident? Because it just, again, it seems to be a newer syndrome. You know, five, right. six years ago, we didn't see as, as such. But now as we've seen actually improved management right. and feeding strategy, more cases of these ajitadas or, or agitated calves. Right. I, I think your line of thought is pretty spot on. I would have to agree with that. I think they it comes to the theory that they are coming from 
uh, heat stress environment in utero with likely uh, lower nutrients, less oxygen, um, you know, they are born hypoxic, um, they're undergoing hypoxia and uh, lower nutrient availability in utero uh, from, from, you know, the mother. And they are coming to an environment that it's richer in nutrients. So um, I think that's a possibility. There are some theories that really uh, explain this in terms of uh, there's the silver spoon hypothesis, the predictive adaptive hypothesis, that if you're in a um, more detrimental environment and you come to a, a better environment, you're, you're having a hard time adapting to that. And I think that could be it. Uh, the other thing to add on top of that is that from what we have seen, um, if a calf is born, a heifer is born to a heat stress strike cow, they have um, elevated re rectal temperature. Uh, we haven't seen that with respiration rate. I think they, they do have a little higher respiration rate, but rectal temperature uh, basal rectal temperature, core body temperature is, I, if I remember correctly, uh, 0.2 degrees Celsius-ish higher than uh, a heifer that was not born to a heat stress cow. So their bodies are shifting their uh, core body temperature to a hotter environment. So it's possible that um, they are breathing heavier because their bodies are adapting as well. And the other thing that could be happening as well that we have seen quite a bit is um, they have lowered hematocrit, lower red blood cells when they are born. So that ability to exchange oxygen, oxygen. might be impacted yeah. as well. Yeah. So I think the hypoxia coming from in utero and then that they are born with lower red blood cells, lower platelets, and uh, um, with that core body temperature that it's higher than a, you know, um, heifer that wasn't heat stress in utero, that all adds into the syndrome, I think. Uh, and if on top of that, you're trying to feed her more, <laughs> she yes. might not even want to eat, right? So that's something that we, we saw as well. Um, those that were born to uh, in utero heat stress uh, dry cows, their appetite was uh, depressed. Um, so if you want to shovel more, more nutrients there, uh, you might have to find a different strategy to do that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of factors, but I think when you put them all together, it makes sense that these animals are having a rough transition. And I would say we do see that, uh, from observational, uh, data that, yeah, can, calves uh, not consuming all of their milk, you know, a healthy yes. calf that, that is uh, no signs of, uh, of uh, scours, pneumonia, what have you, just not finishing their milk. So I, I think that's... Uh, yeah. No, and anecdotally, uh, we, we tried to do some uh, behavioral tests with milk as a reward, and we totally failed because that was not the reward that we should be offering because they mm -hmm. were just not wanting to eat. So uh, I think there's it has to do with appetite suppression uh, while they are in utero, something's going on there that programs them to um, not wanting to eat. So it seems like the really simple uh, take home from this is cool your dry cows. Um, and obviously that's easy to say, but uh, uh, 
you wouldn't have any research to do if, if everyone did that really effectively. Um, <laughs> but but, but uh, a comment that you made earlier on, which I, I took a note here, is the um, the early dry period uh, effect on the on the mammary gland and heat. And so, can you go back to that because a lot of times our earliest dry cows um, are maybe the ones. I don't want to say neglected, right? But you, you know, the, the the old school, you know. Yeah, you're like, done. Uh, you're done. I don't want yeah. to think of you anymore. Yeah, yeah. Out, out in the back forty type thing, yes. and then maybe you know, close up. You come to a better facility with obviously yeah. a close up diet and so forth. But what you said there actually indicates that potentially those immediate days after dry off are actually the most important in terms of uh, the the regeneration yes. of the gland. And they are. I, I you know like. From a mammary physiology standpoint, and this is something that, um, you know, we often not think about when we're thinking about the practical implications of why we offer a dry period to, to a cow, right? So um, really that uh, dry off day, that milk stasis that uh, you, you start when you uh, dry off a cow is, is really important. Those four days, first four, five six days are really, really um, crucial for um, the turnover of cells in the gland. So you want cells to be um, dying, actually. So that milk stasis, shutting down milk protein genes and inducing cell death, it's very important at that time. First week of the dry period is crucial to get rid of all those cells that have been producing milk for 10 months. They are just tired. So uh, that environment there is really helping with that, you know, um, accelerating that um, clean off senescent cells that are just tired of producing milk so that during the redevelopment phase when that cow is going to approach parturition and you have all the hormones, colostrogenesis and all of that, you want to have proliferation in that phase. But in order to, for proliferation to uh, happen effectively, you need to get rid of those old cells. And that happens in the first week of the dry period. So from a mammary gland biologist perspective, that first week is the most important that you probably, uh, and they, like you said, is uh, sometimes the most neglected. Okay, so, so heat stress negatively affects programmed cell death is kind of the take home. Of that. Yes. 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 You got it. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Yes. Uh, so yeah, lo lots of, lots of good data to, I guess, support what we already know, but hopefully some of these, uh, some of this background will help our, our listeners really focus on, okay, don't forget that, that dry transition cow because um, it has a huge impact, not only on that animal, but, but future offspring. Um, and I, again, I think that's exciting because there's an actually an opportunity there. It's not like, okay, this happens, we can't do anything about it, but probably on most yeah. sites, we could actually do a lot about it. Yeah, and I, and I think um, on that note, you know, the dry period is, is, is an opportunity. It's a short period that we can do something. Mm -hmm. The pre-winning phase is an opportunity. It's a short period of time that you can really impact. And I think that, this, I like calling it perinatal program. And if you think about the calf, right, the in utero and then, you know, that early life, those early weeks and months 
are are really instrumental for for them to to perform later on. And I think you know perinatal programming is becoming a thing because we're starting to recognize that what we do there can really have an impact for for life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that producers are starting to listen and are starting to see these long term. Uh, carryover effects and, and, and more data in this uh, area that it's really eye-opening, you know, those detrimental effects in the daughters and the granddaughters really, you know, set the stage for um, for, for this research to, to be meaningful because, um, you know, when you start to see those uh, detriments down the road and you start putting numbers on this and also, you know, as a welfare concern, nobody wants to have cows that are not being uh, producing at their uh, best potential, right? And so uh, that's costly. That's that's a lot of money. Um, you know, we have data showing that the, the, the daughters, so those first generation heifers, some of them don't even make it to lactation and it's like 25%. Uh, so that's a lot. Uh, no, that's I, a lot. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, the, these are, I'm really excited for um, our clients to listen to these comments because, again, we have herds that are focusing on genomics and, and other uh, uh, methods that, that you know, uh, have an investment, have a cost. And not to say don't do those, but almost, you know, where, where genomics, uh, where is the place for genomics when we're not properly cooling our dry cows, perhaps? You know, maybe those are things right. that we can do, start yeah. with the basics again and then move on to those maybe some more. Yeah, and I, and I think the word is out there, you know, like uh, Dr. Dahl has been talking about these for 10 years now, and I think that they are starting to listen. Uh, so I think that, you know, uh, change is happening, and I think that the research that we're doing is, it's important to, 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 to get out there and um, showing with with numbers with data that this is really a thing so we we have to stop thinking about heat stress as a summer <laughs> seasonal summer uh you know heat stress is impacting your herd even in in winter you know because of this what i like calling the hidden effects of heat stress and that's a great point and i i think also you know a lot of folks who maybe live in southern climates would say oh uh, Wisconsin doesn't have heat stress or, or northern New York or what have you. And, and uh, for those who have any time there or dairies, uh, certainly it's it's less. But you know what? There is a lot. There's a lot of cows. <laughs> yes, and so even these shorter summers or periods of heat stress can really have an impactful effect in, in, in your cows. If you think about 15% of dry cows during that time, there's a lot of cows. <laughs> Excellent. So... Excellent, Jimena. I think we have um, a lot of information for our listeners to, to really think about. Again, for, for those in the Northern Hemisphere uh, to uh, prepare, plenty of time to prepare for those listeners who are uh, in your home country and, 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 and south of the equator, uh, you better get on it uh, uh, to, uh, <laughs> to help prevent the, the effects of summer that are, that are coming. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. DSM Firmanish. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM Firmanish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Bergen Schmidt. 
your partner for improving animal performance. Maximize profitability and herd health with early detection in animal health, reproduction, calving, and feeding. The most advanced bolus technology and professional support from agricultural experts makes this possible. SmaxTech, the health system that future-proofs your operation. As we wrap up, I'm going to uh, kind of have the uh, traditional dairy podcast show uh, questions, oh I guess. <laughs> what well, One would be um, uh, a resource that you go to, and this can be, you know, text, uh, online, what have you, in terms of uh, dairy production, dairy man management. What would you recommend, uh, you know, to our audience? I think, like, uh, you know, I'd with uh, PubMed and these open access journals that we have, there's a lot of information. I think there's probably too much information. I wish I had more time to read, but I think it's a great resource, you know, open access journals uh, that you can access from anywhere, anytime with information on the latest research. And also, you know, there's a lot of universities, including ours, obviously, uh, doing a, a, a lot of great extension work. So I think those really summarize and bring it down to earth, right, the things that we find and uh, sort of digest them to communicate them in, in, in an easier way. Um, so I think those are what I my go-tos uh, in terms of uh, dairy. Um, Books, you know, I'm teaching lactation physiology uh, for graduate students and undergrads here in Wisconsin. So I typically read books for that. And I wanted to show you the one I'm reading now, which is called Milk. And milk. it's a, yes, Milk, the evolution, the biology of lactation. And um, I think that really inspires me in a way I read it every time I have to teach because it talks about the evolution of milk as a as, as a food it talks about the evolution of uh, milk protein genes it talks about the evolution of the mammary gland and uh, so I, I really recommend it it's, it's, it's a really great book to to give you some perspective on 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 on, on milk and mammary gland how fascinating it is excellent and uh, you know when you're when you're maybe uh, not as connected uh, with work, is there anything recently that uh, that you've read or watched, documentary, what have you, that's of interest? I think it's always cool to understand sometimes how we relate those to to the dairy business or the dairy industry or what we do day to day. Uh, right. Anything stand out? <laughs> uh, quite frankly, I, I don't read a lot outside of the walls of academia, which is embarrassing. Um, but I will tell you that I have a five and a seven year old uh, and they are in kindergarten and second grade. So they are learning how to read. So, you know, I'm reading things like click, clack, moo and pit the cat and, you know, the dogman. So if you have kids of that age, you will uh, probably um, agree with me. So, yeah, just reading with my kids. That's we do that every night. So. Um, and then I don't have time to do anything else. <laughs> That's probably more exciting. And I just wrote a comment here, um, a whole other podcast likely, but I was uh, chatting with some folks uh, at a meeting the other day and um, the concern about some of the readings that are given to young children in school that are anti-animal agriculture or anti-production agriculture. So um, having said that, I think, 
um, for those of you who have young children out there, grandchildren, you know, at an early age, uh, choose those type yeah. readings that uh, that uh, can start to educate them what what production agriculture is. Um, yeah, and then I guess, uh, and then along the lines of uh, you know, I guess we've already said here, you know, what 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 separates uh, some of the uh, most progressive, uh, profitable, successful producers. Um, you might say, "Cool your dry cows," but but <laughs> what, what are some comments you have there um, in terms of working, uh, you know, with producers at the uh, university and even extension levels? Yeah, I think that uh, you know I've seen you asking this question before, and you got me thinking. Uh, I believe that for for uh, you know dairy producers, it's, uh, they are bombarded with all this information, right? Like us from the university side, generating cutting edge science and knowledge and challenging dogmas and, you know, all of that, that can be actually overwhelming. Uh, you know, what is that I need to know and what is that I need to implement? What will work? What will not? So I think that what separates uh, successful or more successful is, you know, kind of be able to have an open mind and be able to filtrate that information. This is where I think extension programs are doing an amazing job. And, you know, uh, um, not only those, you know, uh, when, when um, horse dairyman, progressive dairyman and, and, and uh, um, things like that, uh, summarize information in a way that is digestible, that it's understandable, that uh, they can use, I think those are the ones that uh, will keep an open mind and think critically. Those are going to be the ones that are going to be successful. And I think in terms of heat stress and the research that we do, um, you know, being uh, acknowledging that heat stress is not going to go away, unfortunately. And I'm always, you know, optimistic in life in general, but uh, uh, with the predictions that we have, um, it, it's something that will stay with us, and we have to uh, adapt to that, and we have to be proactive and, and, and look at different things. And yes, cooling your dry cows, cooling your calves, that's easy to say. There are other things that we can do, you know, through nutrition, uh, genetics. There are many things. There's no one recipe that will fix it all. Uh, so I think it's combining different strategies that will yield the best results. So Keep an open mind and listen to all you can. Excellent. I think those are some really great comments. Uh, you know, uh, thinking outside of the box, uh, being an early, maybe you don't have to be the first adopter of something, but uh, an earlier adopter in, in, in mm -hmm. most cases. Um, yep. So, uh, Dr. Laporta, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I think a really uh, interesting conversation. Uh, lots of take-home points. I think practical application be really interesting to to see uh, the the results from your U.S. your current grant that's wrapping up, and then obviously uh, in the future the, the the grant that you're starting up the grant work. Um, and uh, again, I think a a, a plug for uh, Wisconsin the University. Uh, lots of good resources on on your websites and so forth. You have a really strong. <laughs> group there and, and it's great to see the research that, uh, and the practicality of the research that's coming out of the, the group at Wisconsin as as many other universities. Um, so with that uh, from the Dairy Podcast Show, uh, Dr. Laporta, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me, you know, share my story, my research and 
what I'm very passionate about. This is a very fertile area of research and I'm really proud to be part of it. Excellent, excellent. And as we wrap up on a Friday afternoon here, uh, enjoy the weekend and uh, hopefully you won't be experiencing too much uh, heat stress here in uh, mid-October in Wisconsin. No, definitely not. (laughs) Thank you so much. Take care and thanks to all our listeners. And uh, we look forward to uh, having you connect again uh, on a recent podcast uh, as they keep coming out. So look for those hot topics. Thank you. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.